Today is the last day in our series called I Love My Church. And I don't know about you, but I feel very sad about that. Not that we will ever really stop loving the church, but this series to me has been a whole lot of fun. And to kind of call it it quits at this point after today, to me is kind of a sad thing. So to humor me and make me feel a little better, say, Oh, thank you. I feel better now. Because I really love my church. I love you guys. I love what God is doing in your lives. I love what God is doing through your lives to impact his kingdom uh, for Jesus' sake. These are great days, really great days. We've been walking through a whole bunch of stuff together over the last number of weeks. On uh, January 17th, we kicked off this Vision 2016, and we uh, began those four uh, different working teams, uh, a team on worship that is studying this space, trying to figure out how we can renovate it and bring it back up to specs. Uh, Most of the infrastructure that lies behind the scenes is antiquated and obsolete. All of that needs to be reworked. Uh, Then also there's this group called the Discipleship Group, and I get to lead that group and I have some brilliant thinkers who are helping me think about the processes in the life of the church to grow people more like Jesus Christ and then we have an outreach group who are analyzing the ministries of the church that we've done and trying to figure out how effective they've been and then to help revamp them and even consider some new things that we need to be up to and then yes there's also this other team called the name change team as they wrestle with what the name means and how it reflects on the church and how it reflects on the community and where we should be going with that. Now, each of these four teams have been very active since the 17th of January, and uh, we are getting ready for this coming Saturday morning, our second of the Builders' Breakfasts. We are talking about building grace for the future, and we need your inputs as we get together. So on that morning, we're each going to stand up, the leaders of these teams, and tell you where we're at, what we're thinking, and we would love your feedback. We would love your inputs so we can take that, in addition to what we've worked on, go back and continue to flesh it out for um, Palm Sunday night, when we will hopefully give final uh, appraisals of things and even take a couple of votes that night. So that whole vision thing kicked off this series, I Love My Church. And then we talked about being a committed community because we cannot do life uh, alone. And uh, I'm pleased to tell you right now, the numbers as far as I know, we're up to 11 people who have said that, yeah, I want to be a part of this, I want to be a member, and so they're jumping into membership. So 11 people, uh, largely as a part of that message and and understanding what committed community is all about, said, yes, let's do this. You know, that's good news. Let's just pause right there and say thank you, Jesus, shall we? You know, if you're not careful, you can run ahead and fail to celebrate what God is doing. And I'm just grateful that God is doing this. Uh, We talk about sacrificially serving a couple of weeks back. Why? Because saved people serve people. And again, 10 individuals have taken on the commitment to work at this hour with children down in the Orange program. And that's a wonderful thing. People have stepped in to help serve in an area of need. Last week, we talked about generous giving. We can't outgive God. How many found that to be a difficult message? Oh, awesome. Nobody did. Great. I'm so pleased that you're all at that point in your lives where you understand that everything you have doesn't even belong to you. It belongs to God. And he's not really how much concerned how much you give. He's more concerned about how much you keep. That's really his measuring stick for how well you're doing in that area. So none of us found that hard. I'm awesome. I'm just pleased with you guys. You're amazing. I found it hard. Hard to speak, hard to do. Uh, but, you know, we can't outgive God. 
So as a result of that, Financial Peace University classes are getting underway in another week or so to help people work through the issues of finances, of money, trying to figure out how to get a handle on them because most people, now this isn't you, most people live in debt. In a debt that one paycheck away from falling into a very deep, dark hole. But our goal is to help you not go there. Our goal is to help you to honor the Lord. So again, th that class is open and ready to start next uh, in two weeks. But if that's something you need, please feel free to step into it. So, today, February the 21st, we are talking about this whole idea of gospel living. Because found people find people. When you have experienced the marvelous grace of God that forgives all of your sin, deals with all of that debt through the cross of Jesus Christ, continues to emancipate your life from the bondage and shackles of sin now, and ultimately will deliver you from the presence of sin so you can spend forever in the presence of God. When you get that, and you know how good that is, you can't help but want to share that with somebody else. Found people want to find people who likewise need Jesus. Take your Bibles with me this morning. We're going to be looking together in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5 today. And again, I want to encourage you, when you come to church, church, when you come to church, bring your Bible. Please bring your Bible. Uh, because what I'm going to do is I'm only going to show you three verses out of Matthew chapter 5. And guess what? There's verses that come before it. Uh-huh. And there's verses that come after it. Uh-huh. And so there is context. And so you really get a sense of context where it fits in the overall scheme of Scripture if you have your Bible with you. I will always project what we're going to be talking about because it just helps for continuity's sake. We all have different versions and translations. That's cool. But for the uh, sake of continuity, I will project it. So there'll always be a digital copy, but bring a paper copy or something that you can actually write down in or put notes in in order to gain context. Matthew, chapter 5 this morning. We're only going to look at three verses together. These words came off the lips of Jesus Christ. He said this, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, in this manner also, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Reading just those two verses, I'm going to invite you to bow your heads with me. Let's pray together, and then we'll start to unpack this. Whew. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here this morning. Thank you uh, for the great worship that we just had a chance to, to lift up the praises of Jesus Christ, to, to consider his many attributes and his many glories. Uh, thank you for that opportunity. Now, thank you likewise for this chance to have the living word of God open, to allow it to breathe into our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit, I ask that today you will take your word, bring it to bear on our hearts. Help us to mix faith and obedience with it and find the blessing from it. Help us today, I pray. In Jesus' name, Father, 
And the people of God said, thank you, amen, amen. Uh, these words off the lips of Jesus, again, are found in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, these words are only a few out of a greater sermon that Jesus preached called the Sermon on the Mount. It takes up chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the book of Matthew. It has been called the greatest message ever spoken by the greatest person who ever lived. It is profound. It has truths that will blow your socks off and bless your life. In fact, it begins with the words, blessed, 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 blessed. You want to be happy in life? You want to have your socks blown up? You want to live the best life you can live by the grace of God? The Sermon on the Mount explains to you how that happens. Now, all that to say is, I'm not going to drill down too deep this morning into this text, because starting right after Easter, we are going to do an expository series, verse by verse, through chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start unpacking all of the incredible truth that Jesus Christ himself shared with us there. Do you want to know what to live in love like Jesus really looks like? We're going to start unpacking that. And so we're going to walk through that, and quite frankly, it's three chapters. There's a lot of good truth there. So it's actually going to take us from the end of Easter right through until September back to church Sunday time to do this expository series. So I don't know about you, but I've been outlining this, and I've been working this, and I am blessed. I had goosebumps all over working the text. It is so amazing. I hope you're jazzed about it because we're going to go there together in the weeks to come. But all that to say is this. I'm not going to go real in-depth here because I don't want to steal my thunder from then. So, but I do want you to get two phrases here. Just two phrases that came off the lips of Jesus for us to hear even today. He said this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What he's saying is this, you are the salt of the earth. 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 You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Whoa. What does that even mean? <clears throat> well, think of it like this. Think of it like this. Every one of us has people in our lives. We have people who are unchurched. We have people who don't know Jesus yet. We have relatives. We have sons. We have daughters. We have grandkids. We have parents. We have spouses. We have neighbors. We have coworkers. We have friends. Friends that we know, people that we know, people that we interact with on a pretty regular basis who are outside of Christ, who are outside of the kingdom. They're unchurched. They may have made some profession of faith in the past, but they're not living in community, which means that, the, you know, whatever they said, I don't know, because Jesus made it very clear that if you're his, that you'll be connected into community and growing. So this much we know, these people are in our world. And our responsibility, according to Jesus, is you are salt in their lives. You are light in their lives for Jesus' sake. Now, salt has many properties. 
Uh, salt uh, can be used to preserve things. You know, you salt fish, you salt meats in order to preserve them. So salt has a preservation factor. We'll talk more about that when we get into the series on the Sermon on the Mount. But salt also has the ability to add flavor. How many of you like to have the salt shaker handy when you eat a meal? I'm glad to see I'm not the only one. I have like this sodium chloride thing. I don't know what it is. I just, I love salt. I love salt. In fact, my favorite brand of chips is salt and vinegar chips. I just eat them, and my mouth gets all swollen and dried out in my mouth. I just love salt. So we'll pray for you, Pastor Bill. Thank you. I probably need it. But salt has this remarkable ability to add flavor to life. Or to, to, yeah, to, to food. But salt also has the ability to create thirst. And so what Jesus is saying is this. In the sphere of influence in our lives, we are that grain of salt that's meant to flavor people's lives. Our lives are meant to be such that they look at our lives and they think, oh, it can be like that? Oh, it can look like that? That looks like it tastes good. I like what I see. Or, or if we're salty enough, and we'll talk again on the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to show you how to be salty, how to get saltier for the people in your world. But it, people, it's got, I'm, 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 I'm tasting this, this desire for something. I, I need something. Yeah, what you're hungering for is Jesus. You see, that's our responsibility. You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt in the lives of people who are outside of Jesus, who have yet to come into the kingdom, who are on the outside looking in, whose lives may be all screwed up and may be really chaotic and really difficult, and they're wondering, what makes life work? You're salty in their worlds. You're also light. Light has the idea that you bring to them a sense of light and hope. You bring to them not only the light of the world, which is Jesus, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you also live the light through love and good works. And so this is our role, our responsibility in the lives of people. We are to be salt. We are to be light. We are to flavor. We are to give thirst. We are to give light and a desire for Jesus. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility with the people God has placed around my life. Family members, neighbors, co-workers, friends, whatever they may be, we all have a group of people. And you're sitting there thinking, wow, (laughs) that's pretty heavy, Pastor Bill. Do you mean to tell me that it's my responsibility that they know Jesus? Are you telling me that it's all on me to be salt, to be light in their lives in such a way that they see who Jesus is and that they want him and that I share the gospel with them and that they get saved? Wow, Pastor Bill, that's mighty heavy. Is that what Jesus is saying? Can I be frank with you? No. That's not what Jesus is saying. Let me explain. Jesus' desire for you and the lives of the people around you is indeed to influence them. It is indeed that you would live a life, a salty life, a life of light and hope. And we'll talk more about how to do that when we go through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to make you salty, friends. We're going to make you bright for Jesus. But what God wants you to do is be influencing in their lives in such a way that your little bit of salt, your little 15-watt bulb light, gives them enough desire for you actually 
to be able to connect them into something even saltier and even brighter. And what he's referring to ultimately is this thing called the church. Because when he says, you are the light of the world, it's actually the second person plural, the emphatic. You all are salt. You all are light. So it's not just your little grain of salt over here with your little 15-watt bulbs saying, oh, please see Jesus. We're a salt shaker. We're a lighthouse. And so our goal is to be influencing and working in people's lives in such a way to become a bridge into biblical community where they can experience, to a much greater degree, the salt and light. Together, friends, we are better when it comes to reaching people with the gospel. It's not all on you. It's on us to see the people trust Jesus. So it's as we invest in people's lives, being salty and having a little bit of light, connecting them into the greater church as we invite them into the salt shaker and the lighthouse of the church that people can then experience Jesus in a much greater way than one person could ever do on their own. Does that make sense? Let me, uh, let me see if I can help flesh this out just a little bit, little bit more. I need... A subject. Hey, Brett. Seems like I picked on you a lot today. <laughs> Thank you, Brett. He's bigger than me and stronger than me, so I'm not going to mess with him too badly. Come on up here, please. So, Brett is a friend of mine. Right here is good. Turn around and say hi to the people. That's okay. Just, just wave. This is what Carrie has to endure, by the way. And so, Brett's a neighbor. You know, and he's a good guy, uh, but he's a guy outside of the kingdom of God. He's a good guy, uh, but he needs a relationship with Jesus, with Jesus, just like everyone ultimately does. Or at least the privilege of understanding the clarity of the gospel to make a decision around it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So here's Brett. And so Brett's my neighbor, and so I'm living my grain of salt in his life. And, and I'm here, you know, Brett, man, um, um, I love Jesus. I love the church. I, I'm, I'm highly connected. We, we have this great thing going on. I love my wife. I love my kids. And... And I hope you can see that in and through my life. And I just want you to know that I would love you to experience all that Jesus wants for you. I want you to be blessed by him. And what I want to do is I want to take this little grain of salt of my life. And I want to say, hey, Brett, would you go to church on Easter? Would you just come to my church on Easter? No, 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 no strings attached, man. Just come to my church on Easter. And so Brett says, okay. <laughs> and so I have invested, and now I have invited. I have taken my little grain of salt, and I have just brought him into the salt shaker. Everybody stand. Wow. You see, all of a sudden, this little grain of my life can now be supplemented and, and embraced and grown by all of the influence of your lives as I bring him in to experience biblical community, see the grace of God lived out, to see what love means. All of your lives ultimately can influence his life. I did the hard work of initiating the relationship, and I'm connecting him into greater biblical community. Thank you. You may be seated. We only have a grain, and I'm going to help you make that more salty as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount. But that grain can actually become the salt shaker as we connect people. Okay. I've got this little light of mine. It ain't much. Would you 
So uh, we live in a very dark world. We've got a nice outline behind us. We live in a very dark world. And so in this dark world, uh, what happens is this. Uh, hey, hey, Brett, you know, um, I'd like to have you see a little bit more of the beauty of Jesus. Um, just be careful you don't trip there, and, and, and here we go. And So my little light has some influence, has the ability to show a little bit. Uh, if you have a cell phone, take it out right now. Take your cell phone out. Okay, I'd like you to take them out and turn the light on. Now, I invite Brett into the church. Come on, bring them all up, all of them, all of them. Okay, all right, all right. Well, I look like I'm at a rock concert right now. <laughs> now, look around, look around. You see, all of a sudden, my 15-watt bulb becomes a million-candle-watt lighthouse. The beauty and the truth of Jesus can clearly point the way to the cross. Thank you. You can put your lights away. Thank you, Brett, for your patience with me. I know you'll get even with me later, man. What I want you to appreciate and understand is simply, come on, there we go, is that you're not all by yourself. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But it's not just you. It's y'all. It's all of us together in this. And so what I want you to appreciate as we kind of think this thought through just a little bit more is simply this idea that the gospel is really a partnership. The gospel is a partnership. It was never meant to be a solitary exercise by an individual out there all by themselves as a lone ranger with a Bible. The gospel is a partnership. I want you to notice what Paul said uh, to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, verses 6 through 9. Notice what he says. I, Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God is the one who gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters really is anything, but really it's God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, we have the same goal, the same purpose, that ultimately there would be life, growth, and fruit. We all have the same desire. And each one will ultimately receive his wages according to his labor. And he goes on to say this, for we are God's fellow workers. So what Paul is saying there to the church in Corinth is, I, Paul, am a seed sower. I'm sowing the truth in your lives. I'm sowing the word in your lives. I'm sowing the seed of the word of God in your lives. And along came Apollos, and he was tending it, and he was cultivating it, and he was watering it. But when life and growth happened, that was God. He is the one who brings life. But what he goes on to say is, we partner with the Lord and with one another in this process of seeing life and growth happen. God doesn't do it apart from his word. And God rarely does it apart from his people. It is a cooperative effort where God ultimately brings life, but he does use us often in that process to see that things come to fruition, that things happen. I'm going to prove more of that as we move forward here. Did you know that in a typical church, typical local church, that only 5% of people in a church will ever actively share their faith and give a clear gospel proclamation to anyone ever? Only about 5%. Now, we may be the anomaly. We may be remarkably different than that. But the general thing is about 5% of people, which means in a room of this size, that's somewhere between seven, eight people out of all of us will ever actively share the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody. 
Well, what about the other 95% of us? We don't have the gift of evangelism. We don't have all of that. So what about the rest of us? What are we supposed to do? Are we those people who, when these people with their grain of salt and, and their little light are doing a Bible study and somebody comes to place faith in Jesus, they say, now you need to go to a local church and they bring them into the local church and they get up here and we watch them get dunked in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. When somebody gets baptized, what do we do? <laughs> clap, clap. Yes, this is good. Yes, yes, awesome. So let me see if I get this straight. 5% of the people do all the work, and the other 95% cheer them on. Is that how it's supposed to be? Oh my gosh, no. Oh my gosh, no. You see, indeed, praise God for people who have the gift of evangelism. Praise God for the gift of people who can actually come in around people who are raw and apart from Christ and work with them. Amen. Amen. But a vast majority will never go there. But what we can do is this. When we actually take somebody who has yet to come into the kingdom of God, yet to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we invite them into the salt shaker, into the lighthouse, now all of a sudden, your life can start to have an effect on them. You can start to have an influence on them through who you are. Did you know that in the average person's life, a person who really has no Jesus in their life or a person who grew up kind of turned off to church, that the average person needs five people that they respect, five people that have credibility in their lives, five people that they don't think are religious nuts, five people who they don't think are wackos, five people who they don't think are just off, the, off their rocker. They need five people, people who are intelligent, people who are educated, people who have jobs that are, that are high quality and of high demand. They need five people that they have, they have credibility in their lives to say, there's something to this Jesus thing. There is something to this. I mean, this guy is smart. This guy is intelligent. He, he's, he's got it all together, and he believes in God. This gal, she, she, she's, she's amazing, and she believes in God. There must be something to this. And so it takes about five credible witnesses in the life of an individual before they really start to contemplate the claims of Christ. Then it takes somewhere between seven and 14 clear proclamations of the gospel of Jesus Christ before they will respond by embracing Christ with their lives. That whole process plays out much easier and better in the context of the people of God than our meager little efforts on the side where we get rejected and we give up. So the point is this. The gospel is a, a partnership. <clears throat> it is the people of God using all of their gifts, all of their love for God, their, their willingness to sacrifice toward one another to evidence the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we connect people into this kind of a living, beautiful community, the result is many people will see the truth, the reality behind this person called Jesus one person put it this way, the most powerful witness we have to the reality of God and the love of Jesus is us. It's us. It's the church. I love what um, a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer said. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, wonderful uh, philosopher, wonderful theologian, great thinker in the Christian faith, a man who's now been with Jesus for some years. But listen to what he said about the power of biblical community. Francis Schaeffer put it this way. Our relationship with each other 
is the criterion the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. Christian community is the final apologetic. The saltiness of the salt checker, the lightness that points to the cross, we have that. And if we would just encourage people to come into that, to walk in that, to find the beauty of Jesus. Somebody uh, had one of the Korean students in their house. Uh, we had, uh, I guess, 25 or 30 Korean students over from Korea to be in the school for three weeks. And so a number of you took a number of these students into your houses. Uh, one young man who's coming to this, had come to this service for a couple, three weeks, he said to the people that he was staying with, he goes, I want your Jesus. Because I see a reality and a beauty in your worship that I've never seen before. You don't have to come from Korea to see that. You can come from next door, down the road, or from the office to see that. The beauty of the body, loving well, worshiping well, is the final apologetic to the reality of Jesus. The gospel. The gospel is a partnership. It is where we seek with our grain of salt in our 15-watt life to invest in the lives of people, to connect them into the salt shaker and the beacon of hope called the local church because together we are better when it comes to reaching uh, people with the gospel. The gospel is a partnership. But secondly, and this will blow your socks off, so hang with me. Come, come with me down this path. The gospel is not just a partnership, but I also want you to understand that the gospel is contagious. The gospel is contagious. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ has properties that are consistent with a virus. Listen, a virus is communicable. That is, it is passed from one person to another. A virus can also be contagious. An infection rate goes up as a non-infected person is brought into highly infected areas. Now, bring that forward. When we risk to connect people who have yet to be infected with Jesus into a highly infectious area, the potential for people to catch Jesus goes way up. That's just, it's just how it works. It's just how it works. You know, I think it's important that we understand that Jesus Christ is not merely a propositional truth that I acknowledge. It is a living relationship. He is a living person whose, whose understanding is better caught than taught. And when you get into the body of Christ and you see us doing this thing called life in Jesus, it is winsome. It is powerful. And when you bring people into a highly contagious area, the likelihood is they might catch it. You know, right now, in this environment right here, if the proper elements were to come together, if we were to put the proper elements in place, this could be a, a highly contagious environment. Let me see if I can show you what I mean. Um... I see people already clutching their lips. Okay, keep, keep trying, here we go. I challenge you to watch this whole video without yawning. <sighs> 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 mm. For many
many of you seeing me yawn just now was enough to make you want to yawn too. But can you suppress it? Already you could feel a tightening in the back of your throat, a moistness in the eyes, a gentle pressure in the ears, a tenseness that you know can be relieved with one simple yawn. It's a biological impulse, the contagious yawn. Even seeing a picture of someone yawning with no sound or motion can be enough to induce a yawn. Or maybe you're one of those people who can read yawn or hear the word yawn, repeated yawn, and feel the need to yawn, yawn. But why is yawning contagious? Well, before we get into that, let me show you something. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. It's like my throat was thirsty for air. Uh, I feel much better now. And that's exactly the point. A yawn calms you down. If you're a pack animal, contagious yawning puts the whole herd on a synchronized sleep schedule. Of course, others say the exact opposite, that a yawn gives you a momentary jolt of energy, and contagious yawning can keep the group alert when one individual starts to get a little drowsy. Yep, I'm up. Feels good to yawn, though, doesn't it? So good. Oh, so good. Whatever the reason, yawning remains a powerful neurological impulse, even across species. One study found that a human yawning can make a dog do the same. Now you may be saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. I could watch people and dogs yawn all day long and not feel that weird breathless feeling in my chest or a vague buzzing in my ears. And if that's the case, you very likely have a neurological disorder that inhibits the development of empathy, like schizophrenia or autism. In fact, doctors use contagious yawning to diagnose these very conditions. Or maybe your doctor's just bored with you. I've got this thing on my back. Oh. Oh. But maybe you haven't yawned and you really want to. Maybe this whole ordeal has been agony for you, where you've wanted nothing more but to breathe deeply, stretch your jaw, and just yawn. And yes, it counts as a yawn if you do that weird thing where you try to yawn through one nostril. Or if you try to yawn without opening your mouth so you look like a frog that's about to vomit. But if you've truly resisted, then congratulations. You made it to the end of the video without yawning. You also put yourself in a lot of discomfort just because some stranger on the internet told you to, so I don't know who the real winner is here. Okay. Oh, yeah, that felt good. Who yawned? Oh yeah, look at the hands go up, look at the hands go up. You see what happened is I created an environment where a yawn went viral and became contagious because not only did we have the stimulus of the yawn, but I also turned the temperature up in here by three degrees and put decaf coffee out there. <laughs> I'm kidding on the coffee, okay? I just want you to know that. The coffee's the real stuff. But the truth is this. If we create the right environment, then what happens is God seems to use, the Holy Spirit seems to bless with life and growth certain environments. It happens just naturally. It seems to happen a lot. In fact, let me give you some four instances. Let's look at the first 
century church really quick. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. This is the initiation of what we would call the church. Peter has just preached on the day of Pentecost, and it says, And those who accepted Peter's message of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, I want you to see the elements that make for an irresistible environment for the gospel to go viral. Here we go. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. They were breaking bread, and, and they were having prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. There were many wonders and miraculous signs being done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and their goods. They gave to anyone as they had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with gladness and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying favor with all the people. Amen? That's an infectious environment. Oh, my gosh. And notice what it says. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So all of a sudden, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends. There's this outbreak of the gospel. There is this outbreak of new life. But I want you to notice, it didn't just end there. This was a very infectious environment, and it went viral. It goes on to say this in Acts chapter 4 and verse 4. Many who heard the message later on believed, and the number grew to about how many? It began with how many? 3,000. Oh my gosh. Rapid growth. This thing's going viral. This thing's becoming an epidemic. It goes on to say this in Acts chapter 5 and verse 14. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It says this in Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In those days when the number of the disciples was increasing, this stuff was going viral. The elements were in place, and there was such, such a, a, a proper positioning of these things that God chose to bless it with a viral movement of the gospel. People were getting saved all over the place. But that's because the right elements were in place, and people's lives were being radically transformed. And so this is exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, just before Jesus Christ went back to sit at the right hand of his Father in heaven, he said this, You are to take this good news to Jerusalem, to all Judea, Samaria, and to the outer ends of the earth. And so it was a local outbreak, the gospel was, in Jerusalem. And then he says, guess what? It's going to go viral, and it's going to start to spread. And it went into all Judea, and then it went into all Samaria. And then by the end of the first century, it not only became an epidemic, but by the end of the first century, the gospel became a pandemic. All through the then-known world, tens of thousands of people were giving their lives to Jesus Christ. This is what can happen when a people of God believe God, live for God, and connect people who need God into the mix. The salt is salty, the, the light is bright, and people naturally come in an environment like that into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You say, I'm still not convinced, Pastor Bill. Still not sure I understand. Well, I'll tell you what. Okay, let's, let's get a little more specific here. Uh, Wikipedia gives us the definition of an epidemic. Oh, my, an epidemic happened here, by the way. An epidemic of the gospel. An epidemic is a classification of a disease that appears as new cases in a given human population during a given period of time at a rate that substantially exceeds what is expected based upon recent experience. Recent experiences, you know, typical church. Oh, look, somebody got saved this year. Ooh, let's get them baptized. Yay, we got one. And then it goes along another year. Hey, we got one more. Oh, we had a bad year. Nobody got saved. Then one more year. Hey, one more. So the expectation is oh, about one a year comes into a relationship with Jesus Christ. When all of a sudden, an epidemic means, based upon recent experience, all of a sudden there is a substantial increase. 
Let me show you a few environments where that's happened. This is a picture of a baptism happening in Lake Penasiwasi. It is in Norway, Maine. The gentleman who's doing the baptizing there is a man by the name of Michael Booker. I graduated from Bible college with Michael Booker. After I left my home area, Mike Booker moved into the area and started a church in South Paris, Maine. I mean, we are talking Maine. We are talking cold. We are talking hard. We are talking uh, withered. We are talking nasty. And that's spiritually speaking. It is hard ground in Maine. Mike Booker comes into the area, and he wants to do the church as the church is meant to be done. He gets a group of people together. They start praying. They start working. They start loving. They start building this community. All of a sudden, people know people who know people, and they start these groups. They start building around these people. And after the second year of this church, 65 people, adults in hard soil Maine, have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. In just two years, 65 people came to Christ. That's good. Just want you to know that's good. That's good. That church continues to go strong today. There are around 300 people. Over 200 of those people are adults who have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ through an infectious church. So there's one instance. Let me give you another instance. Uh, this happens to be me about 10 years ago. I'm standing in a baptismal tank in a Baptist church in Canada. My wife and I, as I mentioned a few weeks back, uh, were in Toronto working with a church planting group. Uh, this lady is Nancy. Uh, my wife and I worked with Nancy. Somebody invited her to the church. She was going through the life of the church. She was identified as somebody who was ready to move forward. So we sat down and did this man called Jesus study with her. So Bambi and I are working through the six weeks with her. At the end of it, she says, I want Jesus. I see the love and the fellowship. I see what God is doing in the lives of other people. I want him too. So we said, amen. So we prayed with her, and she said yes. And So she wanted to be baptized. And so I had the privilege of baptizing Nancy. Now, she had the distinction at the church in Canada of being the 100th adult who has come to Christ under their ministry. You see, these local outbreaks happen all over the place when the proper elements are brought into, uh, brought into effect. So we see that here. Uh, let me just share with you a couple of other churches that I kind of follow along just a little bit. Uh, there's a church up in Granger, Indiana called Granger Community Church. I've been there a couple of times, great people. Uh, they are in... Granger, Indiana, which is outside of, of Notre Dame. Cold. <laughs> Cold, hard ground. And so this church started some years ago. But last year, this church, a Methodist church, in a community of only 30,000 people, baptized their 6,000th person to come to Jesus Christ. You see, what I want you to understand is what happened in the first century still happens today. When people come together, they live out the gospel, they connect people who need Jesus into the mix, and things just seem to erupt, and God uses that and blesses. There's another church called New Spring Community Church. Now it's bigger. It's down in, in uh, South Carolina. Um, I just, I'm on their Twitter account with their pastor. Uh, just the other day, he said so far the first two months of this year at that church, they have had 447 people put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They just had a baptism of 242 people. I want you to know, it still happens. It still happens. Where the people of God get excited about the truth of God, start living it out, start connecting people who need a relationship with Jesus into the midst of the salt shaker and the lighthouse. People get infected. They get, they get, they get sick with Jesus. That sounds bad. That's not what I meant. It happened here. 
It happened here. Some of you have a memory of 1994 in this church, 95, 96. In those years here at this church, the Grace Brethren Church, it looked like this back in those days. That's this section, by the way, not that section. In those days, there was a movement of the Spirit of God because the church had a vision and it had an environment and people were alive and things were happening and people started connecting their friends who needed a relationship to Jesus in that community. In 1994, this church baptized 153 people into the church who had recently come to Jesus Christ. In the first service, I asked who were one of those, some of those people, and they actually raised their hands. There's one, there's another one, there's another one. You see, they were part of a movement of God that happened in this work some years ago. But what I want you to understand is it can happen again. It can happen again. Where the people of God get serious about living out the gospel, where the people of God get serious about being salt and light and influencing their friends' lives, bringing them into the context of the salt shaker and the lighthouse, it is contagious. It is exciting. It is wonderful to watch what God can do. What are the contagious elements that make for a church that God seems to bless? It is a church with vision. It is a church that wants to honor God no matter what the costs may be. A church of vision. It is a church where people are committed into biblical community. It is a church where people are willing to sacrificially serve one another. It is a church where we generously give to the needs of others. And it is a church where we start actively living out the gospel. We have all of those elements here. We just need to get prayerful about this. We need to get excited because we right now as a church are on the tipping balance of a work that God wants to do. And are we going to tip backward and continue to walk around the desert for a few more years? Or are we going to tip forward, get serious about this thing called Jesus and seeing our loved ones come to Christ? Are we? Are we? The gospel is a partnership. It's not expected that you're going to do all the work on your own out there somewhere and hopefully lead somebody to Jesus. It's not meant to work that way. You are salt. You are light. Use your influence to connect them into the salt shaker, the, the beacon of light. Together we are better when it comes to reaching people with the gospel. The gospel is a partnership. The gospel is contagious. And I just want to close with this. The gospel's goal is disciples, not just converts. In the old days, what we would do is we would take EE, go to a doorstep, you know, share somebody the, the love of Jesus, uh, do the four spiritual laws, get them to pray to accept Jesus on the doorstep, and say, amen, you're going to the kingdom of heaven, move on to the next house. Jesus never wanted converts. Jesus wants full-fledged followers of his. And when people are already connected in community, journeying, trying to understand what's happening in their lives, and they come to Christ already in community, it's natural for them to continue to go on and grow in community. That is God's desire for his people. But you say, wait a minute, Pastor Bill, wait a minute. Let me see if I understand this. I thought the church was supposed to be a discipling environment for believers. Yes, it's supposed to be a discipling environment. No, 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 no. If you think the church is really only about believers, you have the wrong church in mind. You're thinking of the universal church. 
You're thinking of that, that spiritual body of Christ, the bride of Christ, where all true believers throughout time, in, in spite of geography, are part of the u- u- universal body of Jesus Christ. The local church has always been an ad hoc mixture of those who are committed and those who are wondering what that means. Of those who are saying, I'm going there, and others say, where? People who say, I'm into the kingdom of God and I, I'm all in. And people who say, how do I get in? The church has always been this group of people who were the committed and those who were questioning. It always has been that way. Think of it this way. Jesus called 12 men to follow him. Those 12 men are often referred to as the 12. Oh, so Jesus was discipling them. I want to ask you a question. When did they really know who Jesus was? After the resurrection. Wait a minute, you mean you can disciple people before they know Jesus? Yes, yes, we do it all the time. If you're a parent here and you brought your kids here, your kids are unsaved when they start out the nursery. I just want you to know that. Okay, your your kids are, are pagans in the nursery. So we put them in the nursery. And in the nursery, we start discipling them. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. So we start out in the nursery with these pagans that don't know Jesus yet. We start discipling them as who Jesus is. We start to give them an understanding of who he is. Then they move into the Sunday school where they are introduced to flannel graph Jesus. You know, we put Jesus up there, and we put his disciples around him, and they feed, so, you know, and they move him over here. And finally, they see him on the cross. He's like this, and of course, it's made of flannel graph, so it's not too grotesque. And so they're learning the story of Jesus. They're being discipled towards who he is. And then they move into youth group, and the youth group says, these are the claims of Christ. Are you willing to bear these on yourself and no longer ride the coattails of your parents' faith? And then the moment of evangelism happens, where the gospel is preached, they embrace, and they go on to be discipled. That is how it works. It has always worked that way. It's meant to work that way. We're on a tipping point as a church. Are we going to tip forward, get serious about this Jesus, get serious about our Christian walk, get serious about the needs of our loved ones and neighbors and coworkers and friends who need a relationship with Jesus Christ? Are we going to get serious about making those, investing those relationships and connecting them into the beauty of this contagious environment? watching God bring people to a relationship with himself? Or are we going to just wander the desert for a few more years? You are the church, not me. We are the church. So Pastor Bill, what do you want from me? (laughs) There's always going to be a hook somewhere in here, doesn't there? This is what I want you to do. Think about this. There's a lot of ways to invite people to church. Emails, voicemails, carefully worded status updates. You could even straight up ask them. Maybe even use one of these guys, along with an incentive. Uh, Too much. That's better. These are all good ways to share your faith. And here's another way. One Life. One Life isn't a program. It's not a technique. It's a philosophy. Find one person and love them. Reach out to them. Be there for them. Be Christ to them. And once you've shared your life, share your faith. Send the email. Leave the voicemail. You can even straight up ask them to church. Now you might get pushback. They may even say no. But that's okay. Friends can handle stuff like that. 
And since friends keep wanting the best for each other, you keep sharing. You keep asking. Because it isn't just an invitation to church. It's an invitation to healing, purpose, peace, recovery, love, truth, joy, and forgiveness. And that's the kind of things you want to share with friends, with brothers and sisters, with parents, and with those we love most. Share your life. Share your faith. One life at a time. your one life? Who is that person in the sphere of your influence that you need to start investing in? You need to start coming alongside, start dropping hands, start sending a text message, start, start just influencing them. Because I just want to say that there's probably never going to be a better time to invite people to come to church than Easter. Just around the corner. I think of that and it scares me. Time goes so, so fast. But I just want to say, we're going to use something that's in the culture right now as a backdrop for the Word of God as we meet each week leading up to Easter. We're going to use this thing called Risen, the manhunt that changed the course of human history. I'm going to see this tonight. I've already talked with a number of individuals who have seen the movie, and they have been highly impressed. The point is this. We're going to talk about stop playing it safe. You know, risk a little bit. Find out the truth. CSI, crime scene investigation. Is this a myth or is it a miracle? And then on Easter, we're going to talk about the greatest comeback in history. Amen? Jesus rose from the grave. How do we know? We're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about Jesus wants you fully alive. The same one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Also said, I have come to give you life. And that you would have it abundantly. And we're going to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Lesson. Who's your one life? Who's your one life? Who's your one life? Be salt, be light, invest, invite. Let me pray. As the worship team comes up to play us out. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you have made us salt. You have made us light as we come to you. And indeed, Jesus, may we become saltier and brighter as we walk with you. But make us as a church salty. Make us as a church bright. And may we create an environment where the Spirit of God is pleased to bring life and growth as we seek to honor you and exalt Jesus. So, Father God, I just really pray for your blessing uh, upon us as a people as we seek to move out into the influence, to influence the people in our lives. May you bring an epidemic of the gospel in our midst, I pray. And the people of God said, God bless you. Have a great week.